So we are in our 11th sermon since Christmas, answering the text, studying the passages in Matthew 26 and 27, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, answering the question, what is the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross? This is answer number 11 to that question. What is the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross? And here uh, in this passage I just read, we actually read the moment where Jesus dies on the cross. Where he, you know, he yields up his spirit. And um, in these verses we read the famous cry of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which tells us that Jesus' death on the cross was an experience of God forsakenness. And, you know, in some sense, Jesus, in his humanity, in his greatest time of need, his greatest suffering, his greatest weakness, greatest loneliness, God was not there. He was forsaken by God. And some of you are here this morning and could say, I know something about what that's like. I have been at my moment of greatest need, my moment of greatest weakness, greatest fear, when I needed God the most and I felt like God was not there, the world seemed completely empty of God. You know what those words mean. You know something of what those words mean. And you know, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about how you know, the Bible doesn't talk much about the physical torture of Jesus' death on the cross. It talks quite a little about, about the shame that he received, the ridicule. That, you know, the shame is actually a worse pain than physical torture. And I think as we get here, though, the experience of God-forsakenness, of feeling abandoned by God, is even worse than feeling shame from other human beings, other people. There is no greater suffering, no greater misery in human life than the experience of being abandoned by God, to feel that God has ignored me. And it's in this way that, you know, the gospel, the, the Bible is tremendously honest. Because here we are, we're at the central message. Jesus' death on the cross this is what the whole, all of Christianity is about. And we don't see happy, clean, moral people living good, happy lives of what we imagine like Christianity is about. is about being good people, good, happy Christian people. That's not what we see at all. We see at the center of the story of the the Bible, God-forsakenness. And if there is a God, what does God have to say about that experience? Well, um, I think he has important things to say to us this morning from this passage. And so I want to answer that question by answering three smaller questions that are answered here for us. This is what the three questions are. First, what does God-forsakenness feel like? Second, what does God-forsakenness demand of us? And third, what does God-forsakenness mean in Christ? How do we interpret it in Christ? So what does it feel like? What does it demand of us? And how should we interpret it? What does it mean for us in light of who Jesus is and who we are in Christ? Three important questions for an important topic for many of us. So, first question is this. What does God-forsakenness feel like? And I want to answer that by looking carefully at this, this expression that Jesus says in verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
What does that, just that expression, that cry, tell us about the experience of God-forsakenness? I think three things, okay? The first thing uh, of what God-forsakenness feels like is it feels like an emotional doubt. Emotional doubt. And that may sound obvious, you know, when you feel forsaken by God, it's not an intellectual problem, but it's an emotional problem. So you hear that Jesus here is crying out. He's saying, my God, my God, that's an expression of our emotions. And I'll tell you why that's uh, important, because for those of you who are maybe today in your dark hour, or a dark hour, or you've been in a dark hour, you know what the Bible says about the dark hours. Your mind knows it. You know that the Bible says God works all things for good for those who love him. You know that it says that in the end every tear will be wiped away. Intellectually, you know the answers. You have the knowledge of theology and Bible verses. And I have a friend who I've been talking with recently who has used this expression of emotional doubt. He says, I know what I would say to someone in my situation. I know all the answers and solutions. I've read the books on theology Yet the emotional sense of God's absence is far stronger than our knowledge. The emotional sense of God's absence is stronger than our knowledge. And and you might say, am I saying then that emotions are not legitimate? Don't trust your emotions. Emotions are bad. You should think yourself out of the dark night of the soul. I don't think you can. Your emotions drive your life. It's the most powerful thing that drives your life is your emotions. And so to feel that God is absent is going to completely throw your world into turmoil. So first, what does it feel like? It feels like an emotional doubt. It's not an intellectual problem. You often know all the answers, but it's an emotional problem. Second, God forsakenness feels like fatherlessness. And this expression where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, some of you will know this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus refers to God as God. Every other place, he is my father. He's my loving father. And, you know, and up to this point, he's re- repeatedly talking about how he does whatever the father tells him. And he loves to go off and pray and be with the father. And he says, I and the father are one. There's this profound intimacy and trust And here in his suffering is Jesus takes our abandonment, our God-forsakenness. God is not the tender, attentive father communicating with him, reassuring him. He is the distant, invisible, mysterious creator and judge. And he seems cold and uncaring. And you know, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a journal uh, late in his life when his, uh, his beloved wife died of cancer, he kept a journal to re- record his experience of what that was like to lose his wife to can- cancer. And I want to read to you one of the things that he said. That it, was, it was later published in a book called a-, a Grief Observed, that journal. This is what he writes. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy... So happy that you have no sense of needing him. So happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed 
with open arms. So when you're happy, God welcomes you with open arms. But then he says, but go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity? And so very absent a help in time of trouble. So absent a help in time of trouble. And you know... When I read that, one of the things that comes to mind is probably Psalm 46 that, that uh, C.S. Lewis is quoting there. Because Psalm 46 says, God is our strength and refuge, a very present help in time of trouble. And he says the experience is that God is a very absent help in time of trouble, especially in our deepest times of trouble. And so the experience of God forsakenness as a fatherlessness goes against the very heart of everything that I believed. Our most treasured beliefs are that God is my beloved Father who is with me and he talks to me and he cares for me. And it's in this, the midst of this experience, those most cherished beliefs seem grossly false. And that leads to a third aspect of the question. What does God forsakenness feels like? So it's an emotional doubt that feels like a fatherlessness, that God is knocking on the door and the door is being bolted shut. And the third answer to what it feels like is it feels like the question, why? Right, that's the main question that Jesus says here. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why? Why are you doing this? And, you know, I, I think it's remarkable that Jesus, who's the Savior, he's the sinless one, who he knows, he's known God's plans in the cross from before the foundations of the earth. He's known what God's purposes are. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life of my own. And as he takes our God-forsakenness, he is painfully screaming, why? Why, for God's sake, would a good, loving, almighty Father ever want something like this to happen? And of course, that's one thing that suffering does is it confronts us with the question of the sovereignty of God in our lives. God's complete control over all that happens in this world. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, Jesus says that ultimately the reason I'm here on the cross is not because of Pontius Pilate. It's not because Pontius Pilate is a cruel governor. The reason I'm not on the cross is not because of the chief priests who've been plotting against me. I am here on the cross because you have forsaken me. That is what has happened. And now many people will get to this point and say it is God that is forsaken, is God forsakenness of Jesus dying on the cross. They get to that point and they say, well, there it is. God willed this suffering. Isn't that enough for us to finally say that the God of the Bible is a fiction? How can we believe in the God of the Bible who wills crucifixion? And what's so amazing about the Bible, the honesty of the Bible is that when we hear Jesus crying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's like the Bible is bringing us to the brink of unbelief. And we're saying it is God who is the one who is in 
supreme control over everything and is right when we're at the point to step over the edge of unbelief, we realize that the one who's experiencing this emotional doubt, who's taken our emotional doubt, who's experiencing this fatherlessness, who's taken that, and who's asking the question why, is God himself. God himself is asking those questions. And that is enough to give us pause from stepping over the edge of unbelief to say, this is a strange God. The one thing I can't say about him is that he is evil. And it causes us to wait and to wait on him and to study him and to find out who he is. And so this leads to the second question we need to answer is that, first of all, okay, what does it feel like? That is a real experience. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Emotional doubt, fatherlessness, the question why. You say, yes, that has maybe been a large part of my life or at significant points in my life. The second question we need to answer then is, what does God forsakenness demand of us? How does God expect me to respond to this experience of God forsakenness? And, you know, I... I think it's helpful, if you're in that dark season, I think it's helpful to think of that season as a path that God has called you to walk. You know, a dark path. You know, I picture a path going into a dark wood, and you don't know how long the path is. But one of the things that the image of a path says to us is at least there's movement. You're not just staying still, you're going somewhere. I'm walking somewhere, and he's told me to take one step at a time and to walk that path. And in order to walk that path, what do I need in order to walk the path? And I want to highlight two things from this passage. The first thing that we need to walk the path is the words of God. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many of you know he's quoting a famous psalm, Psalm 22. It's the opening line of Psalm 22. The words of the scriptures are on his lips. And so in order to walk the dark path, you have to express out loud your experience of God's forsakenness. In the Bible, particularly the Psalms, incredibly, God gives you permission to say all these things to him. My emotional doubt. My sense of fatherlessness. My questions why. My complaints against God. The, the Psalms invite us to do that. Uh, um, uh, and it, but I'll tell you why it's important for the Bible to teach us how to do that. Because, you know, it's very common in our generation to say that we need to be honest with God. Um, you know, that you need to tell God how it feels like that he has failed you at times. That you are angry with him. And the Psalms say that this is an essential part of your worship to lament, to cry out to God. And, um, and even to cry, why have you forsaken me? He gives us permission to do that. Um, that's an important insight that our generation has really emphasized. But there are many people also in our generation who have said, but you know what? You know, it's time to be honest with God. Uh, he's failed me. God has been violent. God is regressive in the Bible. And you know what? I'm done trusting him. And the complaints have gone so far that they have led us to a hardening and a bitterness and a distrust and a self-pity. And so on the one hand, it's like we need, God says, you need to complain against me. You need to be honest with me. And yet we might not, maybe shouldn't trust our complaints against God. 
I mean, what if I had false expectations that he disappointed? And maybe those expectations were wrong. Maybe my complaints are wrong. So how do we say that I need to complain against God, and yet I'm not sure about my complaints? God's words. God gives us the words to complain against him in a healthy way, in a way that leads us deeper into him, in a way that doesn't harden us or embitter us. And so one of the things we need to walk the path is we need the words of God to guide us, particularly in the Psalms, and how we complain against him and cry out to him in hope. Okay? But, you know, I want to say one other thing from this pastor, why I think God's words are so important is because oftentimes other people's words are so not helpful during that time. And, you know, that's, you kind of see that in this passage just really briefly. Verse 46, it says, you know, he says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling to Elijah. So he's crying out to God, saying, lie, lie. And they think he's talking about something else. They completely misunderstand him. And, you know, maybe that's been your experience. In your, your darkest hour, you're talking to someone, and you realize this person doesn't have a clue what I'm talking about right now. They have no sense of what my experience is. God does know what your experience is when other people don't. That's why you need his word. And then it goes on. It says in verse 48, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him. So this is in the Gospel of John. Jesus cries out that he's thirsty. And so the soldiers have this cheap wine that they're giving to him. It's like vinegar to quench his thirst. And you know, they say, that is not a good comfort. Cheap wine or that's turned to vinegar when I'm hanging on the cross. You know, again, people can try to comfort us. And <laughs> it's not comforting what they're giving to us. And then in verse 49, it says, But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. So this is maybe some loose reference to the book of Malachi that when the Messiah comes, Elijah would come again. And so they're quoting Bible verses. And so this is, what, you know, this is one of the reasons we need God's word is because so often people are going to misunderstand us, give us a comfort that really doesn't comfort, and then they're going to quote Bible verses at us that we didn't need to hear at that time. And, uh, and so we need the words of God as we walk the path. The second thing that we need for walking the path is we need perseverance. And you know, this passage ends in verse 50, and it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Which says to me, that verse says to me that Jesus completed his path. You know, this was a frightening uh, an endeavor that Jesus did not want to walk through, drinking the cup of God's wrath, and he's completed it. And, you know, I recognize that for some of you, this isn't necessarily a word of compassion to say, God's calling for you to, to persevere, to stand fast. Um, but I think it's important for us to recognize that's a part of the Christian life, is we are going to have dark seasons, and what that's going to look like is perseverance. We should just have that expectation. That's what, what life is going to look like for me. And um, if I could quote C.S. Lewis one more time. C.S. Lewis in his the Screwtape Letters, which if you've never read the Screwtape Letters, is a collection of letters from a senior devil writing to his nephew, who's like a lower level de devil. And he's teaching him how to tempt Christians. And at one point in one of the Screwtape Letters, this is what Screwtape, the senior devil, says. Do not, to Wormwood, who's the lower, his nephew, do not be deceived, Wormwood. 
Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemies, that's God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. And still obeys. We should have a vision that there are going to be seasons of our life where we look around the world and every trace of God's beauty and goodness has vanished. And to say we're still going to obey. We're still going to walk. That's going to be a part of your Christian life is to do that. And if you were here and you'd say, you know, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm the one who looks around the universe and every trace of God and his goodness and beauty has vanished. What are you supposed to do? One thing is don't leave. Stay. Wait. Walk. And the work he has begun in you, he will see to completion. Walk and wait, and the work he has begun in you, he will see to completion. Now, I know that some of you will hear that word, perseverance, and perseverance sounds so strong and triumphant. You know, like in the face of pain and fear, we made it to the end. And, you know, even this guy who's like, there's no sense of God in the world, and yet he still obeys. And you say, you know, but that's not even me. Like, I, I, I skip church, and I don't read the Bible, and I don't pray. I don't say anything. And then all of a sudden there's this compounded shame that now I'm in the dark sour where I'm supposed to trust God and I need him the most and I don't talk to him. And maybe that's why I'm God for, I feel so forsaken is because, um, is because of uh, my failure to obey God and to not trust him. And so we feel this shame for our doubt and our depression and that we don't want to go to church or pray or read the Bible. So I think that leads to a third question for us to answer this morning. So first, what does it feel like? It feels like an emotional doubt, a fatherlessness, and the asking the question, why? What does it demand of us? We need the word of God to give us words to say our complaints against God. And we also, we need perseverance. We should be prepared for that. But the last question is, what does God-forsakenness mean in Christ? How should we interpret it? I think one thing that's important to understand kind of theologically about this passage is, is that, you know, the Bible tells us that Jesus is God's beloved son and that they have had communion together for, before the world existed. For all eternity, they have this perfect harmony of mutually glorifying one another and esteeming one another and this, this kind of transparency and care and intimacy that they've had forever. And for many people, when they come to this passage, they say, oh, no, this... This beautiful harmony of God has now been fractured. God himself has been fractured. I think that's a mistake to read what's happening here. Because what's the, Jesus, his whole time through the cross, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He's quoting the Bible here on the cross. He was faithful to the end. And so Jesus, as God, has, still has communion with his Father. But what he has done is he has brought our abandonment, our God-forsakenness, and he has brought that into his communion. He's absorbed that. And so what Jesus is doing here, when he has been taken our God-forsakenness that we deserve, we deserve for God's face to be turned away from us. He took that so that we could be brought into that life that he has always had 
that he still has on the cross, that he will has, have when he's raised from the dead, that he has now as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he has brought us into that life. And you'll notice that as we've been going through this sermon, I keep using the phrase, the experience of God-forsakenness. And the loudest thing that we need to get from this text is you may experience it as God-forsakenness. That's a part of our human misery in this world to experience that. It's not truth. Jesus has taken your God-forsakenness so that God never, ever, ever will forsake you. Never, ever will. And if you are in Christ, you have been brought into that life. And no one and nothing can take that from you. And it is only because of that truth that you'll hold on to God's word and that you'll persevere because you have perseverance in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our great Father in heaven, what words of mystery here that the eternal Son who has com had communion with you from all eternity has taken on our God-forsakenness in our place so that we might be brought into your life. My Father, I pray for those who are here who are in their dark hour. Lord, we are not Jesus. We need at least tokens of your love and goodwill towards us even when you call us to walk dark paths. I pray for those who are here who in your need and your mercy to give them tokens of your love, to help them to hold fast to Christ who is the head, to help them to persevere. Do that by your spirit this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Nate.